This here's Lester Roadhog Moran, and you're listening to the Poptimist Podcast. Oh, all right, mighty fine. Let's go. Welcome to the Poptimist. Today we have Donnie Miller. Donnie, thank you for coming on. No problem. How's it going? It's going really well. Um, my first question for you today is what makes your hometown, Coffeyville, Kansas, a special place? <laughs> well, I think most people would know the name from it being mentioned in the Eagles song, Doolin Dalton's. Mm-hmm. Three Brothers Lying Dead in Coffeyville. That's my hometown. Is uh, where the Dalton gang in 1892 on October 5th, they tried to rob um, two banks. They rolled into town, but some of the townsfolk recognized them as they rolled in. They parked their horses in the alley, um, and they went into the two banks to rob them. Well, somebody recognized them and said, Hey, the Dalton gang's here trying to rob two banks, which was kind of bad because both banks, for them it was anyway, both banks were right across the street from the hardware store where they kept the guns. Oh, yeah, okay. So all the townsfolk ran in, loaded up, and ambushed him as they came out. Killed all but one. And uh, the oldest, I guess. And um, they have reenactments every year. They close off downtown. And and uh, period actors put on all the garb from the day of 1892. And they'd ride into town. And they rob it. And they get killed every year. So it's... It's pretty wild. They call it Dalton Days. Now they call it Dalton Defender Days. I guess a lot, there were four townspeople killed also in that. Oh, okay. In that deal, so. Um, That's very Old West kind of frontiersy. They have a museum there with the guns that they used to rob the banks and everything. And So it's, yeah, it's the original Condon Bank is still there. There's, there's, um... It, it, it's ama- an amazing thing to go be a part of. I've played there during Dalton Defender days a couple times. I go back and play. It's always a treasure to get to go back and play in my hometown. So, so are the townspeople, like the people you grew up with, are they kind of brassy? Are they cut from that same cloth of, no yeah, way, we, there's no way you're coming into our town. We are the original, we don't call 911. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we are the original, we don't call 911. As a matter of fact, I've been thinking about getting some t-shirts made up that say, says that with the Dalton gang all laid out. They've got a picture of them laid out in the jail, dead. Frontier justice. Frontier justice. That's right. We handle it on our own terms. Don't fuck with us. Yeah. Literally. Because we'll kill you. <laughs> so the landscape, is it real flat there? No, you're thinking about farther west. Coffeeville is situated right on the Oklahoma line. As a matter of fact, part of it sits in Oklahoma. They call it South Coffeeville, Oklahoma. Okay. And 70 miles from Missouri. So basically what we are, where I live, is the beginning of the Ozarks. Um, strange story, a scientist found a specific um, turtle that they, they had thought to be extinct around that area. So he got the bright idea that they would put radio transmitters on it, release it back into the Verdigris River, and they would follow the signal down the river to some underground cavern where there were a whole bunch of these turtles. Well, they they later said that they, they got lost. They, they lost the turtle. They got lost in the underbrush of the river. That it, The guy, the scientist, said that he'd been in the Amazon and nowhere had he ever been on Earth was the jungle as thick as it was around where my, I grew up. There's hills and rises. It's like I said, the beginning of the Ozarks, basically. If you look on a map, you can see that the oldest mountain range on planet Earth runs right through where my hometown is. It's just it's kind so of prehistoric. Old. It's so old that it has, you know, degraded. It's it's fallen down into the earth. But that's where the oldest mountain range on planet Earth was. And and you wouldn't you wouldn't think in that part of the country that you would see mule deer either, but I'd been out quail hunting one day and jumped a buck in full rut. And I was used to seeing whitetails, you know. Whitetails is much smaller deer than a mule deer. It scared the piss out of me. I only had a shotgun at the time. I lowered at him. He stopped and looked at me. And I looked at him. I lowered at him. I thought, no, if you shoot this 
mule deer with birdshot, you're only going to piss him off. He's going to come so right So I for just you. kind of froze. Yeah. And he, he bounded off, but I've seen mountain lion there. Oh, shit. Okay. Pretty scary place. A lot of farm ponds just across the line in Oklahoma. You can, um, where I used to go fishing all the time, like 10 minutes from my front door. At sunset, you can actually see the curvature of the earth there. So it's pretty, pretty bizarre. Strange place to grow up, but I, I wouldn't have it any other way. I, I love the geography, geography of the place. And when I first moved here, I was driving into Lebanon. And Lebanon, Tennessee, really reminded me of Coffeyville, Kansas. Really? It's surrounded. It sits down in a river valley. Yep. There's a river running through it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's surrounded by hills. And uh, just beautiful part of the world, as is Lebanon. I've, I've always felt at, right at home since the, the first day I got here, 18 years ago. So. Okay, so you've been, you've been in town 18 years. Yep. I moved here with... Uh, Everything I owned in my 65 Nova wagon and $600 in my pocket. Yeah, that's usually how the story goes, right? I came to do my second album after my first one. A buddy of mine, uh, Troy Klontz, was playing uh, Steel for Brooks and Dunn. And uh, he was going to help me work on the second album. And when I got here, for some reason, he had totally... I guess his wife had been against the idea or something, so I... Uh, I um, I ended up at Superior Music in Mount Juliet because I had went to the AutoZone. My fuel pump had went out of my 65 Nova wagon. So I went to the AutoZone, got a fuel pump, and I noticed the music store right next door. And I went in and I asked the guy, I said, is there any jams going on or anything? The guy said, yeah, there's one on Thursday night. And it just happened to be a Thursday night. Right down the street at Lady Godiva's in Lebanon. So I went to the Golden Gallon there in Mount Juliet, asked the gal if I could pull around back and change my fuel pump. I was filthy dirty. I went in and took a shower in their bathroom, changed clothes, and went to that jam that Thursday night, and that's the jam that I still host to this day. Wow, okay. We've never missed a Thursday night in 18 years. It's the longest-running blues jam in Nashville. So That's cool. It is cool. It's been the big, a big blessing in my life because I've met so many wonderful people and I've been able to give so many other people work and and help people that you know we it's not a it's not an all pro jam as they call I've heard them called around here yeah. because that's not the true spirit of a jam from like Baton Rouge where where uh, I'm familiar with them getting started anyway the guy I met the first night I was in town that was running the jam was um, a guy named Patio Daddio I know Patio. You know Patio? Yeah. Plays in Delicious Blue Stew. Yeah. I met all the guys in the Three Bean Soup? Yep. Three Bean Soup as well. And I met Patio that first night, and it's like I fell into a hornet's nest. I don't know. My luck. I have the best luck in the world, I guess. Mm -hmm. And the next night, he took me down to Bourbon Street where they were playing. Bourbon Street's great. And uh, I met Nick Nixon and all those guys down there. And and just, you know, I'm a lucky guy. How did you first get into playing the blues? Well, I uh, I had been on Sony. I had an eight album deal back in the '90s with Sony, and I did the first album, but it took them three years to get the first record done. So I didn't sign my second option, and I just started touring to support the first record. And in 1992, I I was at home, and I was raising a window in the house, and it got stuck. I pushed too hard. My hand slipped through, and I severed a nerve and tendon on the palm of my left hand, and they had to do a four-hour surgery. Um, I severed the flexor tendon that controls, as you people can see out there in Radioland, <laughs> that controls that movement and um, the nerve that ran up there. And They had to do a four-hour, they had to cut me from there to there and do a four-hour surgery, put my hand all back together, and they said I'd never play again. Wouldn't let me play for a year for fear I would pull the sutures out of the tendon that they'd put in. Uh-huh. And then at the end of that year, I just started kind of playing. I'd always loved the blues. I was an AOR artist until that point. Um, rock and roll. Yeah. Rock and roll. And uh, I started playing the blues as a means of therapy, and it saved my life and my career. So, so you were m- much more of like uh, playing more like album-oriented stuff. That's what AOR is, right? Yes, so it was it was more like it was, prog rocky a little bit or well I I guess uh, one of the guys at Sony he said um, 
You're going to be the next Aldo Nova. I don't know who that is. Aldo Nova? No, Life is just a fantasy. Can you see? No, really. I don't know that one, yeah. All right. Well, you'll have to look it up. I'll have um, to check it out. Aldo Nova had one hit and then vanished straight into the toilet. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I don't want to be Aldo Nova. Mm-hmm. But he was pretty much right. I, yeah. I, I think that first record sold 250,000 units worldwide. I still haven't seen a dime from it. That's the way it goes in the music business it sometimes. Is. It is. And, uh, but, you know, it's funny. I got here. I did my second album with Goose from Goose, Food and Soup. Goose is great. He's one of the best guitar players in Nashville. And uh, he did my second album for 50 bucks. Of course he did. So that's quite a, that's quite a, the first one cost half a million dollars. Yeah. Uh, Sony spent, you know, they'd put, the, the guy they'd put on to produce um, the album was Jason Corsaro, and he'd done the Power Station record. He'd, he'd cut the tracks for the Power Station record. Um, but I wasn't happy with how it turned out, so they had to get the, the guys that did the first two Bon Jovi records. I guess if you would consider that album sounding like anything, you could probably compare it to Bon Jovi. Really? Okay. Yeah, they were trying to, really, Sony was trying to make me the, they had their cookie cutter thing going on. Sure. You know, they find a they find a formula. Sell, sell, sell. Find a formula and then push another one, push another one out, push another one out, push another one out. So, What was the process like for getting signed? Did someone see you just out on the road playing? Did they start hearing about your word of mouth? How did it all go down? Well, I... Um, I had been touring all over the country, and then I got a management deal with uh, Chris Fritz, who owned New West Productions in Kansas City, and New West was the primary concert promoter for Denver, Kansas City, and St. Louis. Okay, so like the Midwest of, region. So because of him, I got to do a lot of opening of shows Okay. Um, for, for a lot of people. As a matter of fact, in 1985, he got me hooked up with, um, the Kinks had come through Kansas City and played at Starlight. And it was the third date of their tour. They had Cock Robin on the first two dates. Cock Robin went on to the Brian Adams tour. So the record company sent a band called Translator out to open for them there. Well, Ray Davies hated him. He hates everything. He fired him on the spot after their set. Wow, at the, damn. At the Starlight. And my manager at the time, he had a cassette with him of our demos, um, half of which I had done on my, my old 80-8, half-inch reel-to-reel, and Half had been paid for to go into a studio, 24-track studio and do. And I believe it was the 10 songs on the the cassette. He gave it to their manager, road manager. And three days later, their road manager called and said they had three days off before we got started in St. Louis. Said that if they can have the, the next four dates, which was St. Louis, Chicago, Detroit, and Milwaukee. He said if they last, if, if Ray doesn't fire them before then, they can have the rest of the tour. So, we the first date we played with them was the Fox Theater in St. Louis. Seven balconies and a Tiffany glass ball big enough to hold a Silverado truck in. I was wide-eyed and bushy-tailed. Um, How old were you? Must have been about 27, I think. Okay. 27, just balls to the wall. All in. All in. All no in. looking back. No looking back, I didn't drink at the time because, you know, playing 250 days a year, I couldn't drink and give the it's most It's not a sustainable life. It's not. Well, you have to, you know, it's funny. It's a regimented lifestyle when you're out touring and people, I, I it's a lot like the military. Yeah. You've got to be on it. You know, you have to give your audience everything you got and you, uh, you have to take care of yourself. Yeah. You have to take your vitamins, eat right. You got to take care of your voice. But we did the first four dates of the Kinks tour, and, and we were at the Alpine Valley, Wisconsin, where Stevie Ray Vaughan died leaving. Really? In a helicopter crash, yeah. We were at Alpine Valley, and it's this huge hotel, has, is how it started, with um, a golf course that had been around forever, is what Alpine Valley was. And the, the hotel was a lot like The Shining. There were dead animals, heads everywhere oh, yeah. inside. And huge, just huge. You could get lost in the place. And they had built a 10,000-seat amphitheater um, to kind of bring in business in the summertime because in the summertime, uh, um, they needed something. I guess the golf course 
yeah, uh, wasn't enough to draw people in in the summertime with a hotel. But was is it like a, a place to ski also or something? Oh, like absolutely. That? Yeah. Okay. They cool. don't call it Alpine Valley for no okay, reason. Okay, so it's like a, a ski resort in the winter time, and in the summertime they were looking for something to bring in business, so they built this place. They built a ten thousand seat amphitheater. Yeah. And uh, who was it? Was there the night before us? I think John Waite from the Babies was there the night before us. And we had two days off that we had to wait for them to call and let us know whether we had the rest of the tour. And finally, So you were just waiting there trying to find out on <laughs> we, pins and needles? We had a night off, so and, and if I had a night off and I knew I didn't have a show the next day, I, I, would, I would have a drink with the boys, and we went down the hotel room and drank like fish, and the next day we found out that we were going to Detroit, and we got the rest of the tour. We even got to do two nights on the pier in New York, next to the USS Intrepid on the Hudson River, which was pretty amazing, you know. So, and at the time I thought, wow, this is great, I'm going to get signed. It's 1985. And when people were still getting signed. Yeah, yeah, when people were still getting signed. And, and uh, you know, it didn't happen. I had record companies come out and watch us there in New York. And uh, we tried uh, for several, couple more years I think A&M and MCA came to Kansas City to the Uptown Theater to see a show that I headlined there with 3,000 people. The place was sold out. And we were doing, at the time, we were, we were playing, uh, opening for other people and um, headlining smaller, you know, anywhere to 3,000 seat venues. Mm -hmm. You were becoming like a powerhouse regional act. Anywhere we played, we were the top draw. Yeah. Always. And we were doing about 50% covers. And then the, when we had the big shows, of course, we would just do our own original material, my uh -huh. material. And um, I, the, he had, my manager in Kansas City, Chris, had given my cassette to another management company based in Florida, Gozinia Brothers. How about that? Gozinia? <laughs> Gozinia Brothers, yeah, another management company. And they had gotten my tape in, into the hands of the monitor guy for Monsters of Rock. And Monsters of Rock, the PA company, was audio analyst out of Canada, was doing the PA for the production for um, Monsters of Rock. And their vice president was at a show, and this monitor guy at Monsters of Rock had gotten my tape played between the bands. And he had heard it being played, you know, between bands for Monsters Rock. And he said, who is that to one of the crew? And he said, I don't know. It's the, he asked the sound man, I believe. And the sound man said, I don't know. It's the monitor guy's cassette. You can ask him. He knows. So he, in turn, gave the tape to Lenny Pizzi, who had signed Boston, Cheap Trick, Molly Hatchet, Cindy Lauper, all to their first record deals. Lenny's a legend in the music business. Sounds like it. And, uh... But at the time, I didn't know all this was going on. I had, we had opened, opened for, for um, Wasp, Blackie Lawless and yeah, Wasp. Yeah, yeah, okay. We had opened for them at the Uptown Theater through Chris. And uh, worst mismatched double bill you can imagine. Yeah, because they're, they're like a heavy metal band, right? Like and I was LA, like, I was like pop, pop rock, Bon yeah. Jovi type stuff. Yeah, so. Um, but Blackie liked my songs. And I didn't know that he had, he would pay people to write his songs. He paid two Mexican brothers for almost every song that he had. Yeah. Really? True story. Yeah. So he calls me up and Blackie says, why don't you come out to L.A. and I'll shop you to my label and a couple others and we'll see if we can get you signed out here. So I flew out to L.A. and, and I um, I lived with Blackie for two weeks. We'd, we'd go out to all these places. He took me to his label. Uh, they didn't seem that interested. And while I was there... I got a phone call from Lenny Pizzi, who had figured out where I was staying, because this is pre-cell phones, of course. Well, if you had a cell phone, it was this big. Uh-huh. And uh, I went straight from L.A. to New York and signed with uh, CBS at the time. This was before Sony took over. Um, but, you know, my, in my estimation, when Sony took over, every guy at BlackRock, which is what they called CBS Records in New York, in Manhattan, because it's the only building that's made out of black granite. The entire building, they call it Black Rock. And uh, I I'd, I'd went there, and, and the guy that heard from Audio Analyst, he later became my manager. But um, 
I got there to BlackRock, and we, when Sony started taking over, it was like every guy in the building was walking around with one hand over his throat and one hand over his asshole because he was worried about the guy in the next office. Because mm. Sony was coming in, and they were clearly making changes. Heads were going to roll. Coming in hot. Coming in hot, and heads were going to roll. They were going to re... They were going to do it the Sony way instead yeah. of their way. And Lenny made a subsidiary label called Imagine Records, which is what that first album, One of the Boys, is on. CBS product number 44309. You can find it. It's widely available. I never, I don't make a dime. You can also find it on my band camp, though, and download it for free because I give my music away. I, money's not the most important thing to me in this world. Yeah. I've been thinking more about that concept recently of... The, I'm, I'm trying to get back to more of like when you were a kid, you know, because like music is just music when you're a kid. You're not in Nashville. You're not trying to have a career. Like the music business is different than your music. Well, that's uh, I, I got to go way back for that story. Um, I was born with the name Carrie Dwayne Johnson. That's the name I was born with. To an unwed mother. Um, in a unwed mother's home in Jackson County, Missouri. And at four days old, I was adopted. I was pulled from my mother. And my brother, who was also adopted 19 months earlier through an Oklahoma state-funded agency, cost $200. The whole thing cost 200 bucks. Whereas 19 months later, a dirty attorney from Coffeeville named Al, Al Grarholz did the deal with his brother-in-law who was a doctor making the rounds at the unwed mother's homes. So they had this scam going. Insider trading. They would find people who couldn't have children and prey on them. And then they'd get it all hooked up. I cost $1,200 19 months later. I was a black market child basically. Mm -hmm. But um, at six my parents told me I was adopted. They were very religious people. I was like square peg round hole. I was like you know, I was born, and I didn't know all this until I was 36 when I met my real mother, which I'll get to in a minute, but I was like surfer dude thrown into a Bethel Pentecostal holiness family of Kentucky Hill people and Oklahoma red dirt. My mom was from Oklahoma and my dad was from Kentucky. He was the oldest of the 13 kids, so you can imagine they pulled him out of school in third grade to work on the plantation. So that's the, the environment I was being raised in, and we went to church three days a week. When I was four, they, put, they found out I could sing somehow, and they put me up in front of people uh, to sing a special, they called it, at church service. Little Donnie would get up and he would sing a special. Well, when I was seven, my mom didn't think we were getting enough church at our church, so she took me to the black church friends had. And it was, that was the eye-opener for me at seven years old. I thought, man, nobody in my church can sing at all. <laughs> oh yeah these motherfuckers over here are singing yeah they are singing and so I, I I learned a lot of that soulfulness that where it got where it's got to come from uh -huh. it's got to come from down in here mm -hmm. you can't you can't fake that shit you either got it or you don't you either got it or you don't and so I've been singing my whole life and that translated into them buying us, my brother and I, musical equipment because they knew that that would keep us from running the streets. If we had what we wanted there, then, and they, they weren't rich people, you know. My dad, having a third grade education, he had the same job for almost 60 years. He worked in a scrap metal yard. You know, and at times he had three jobs. My mom was, she had, uh, she was self-employed. She had a second-hand store. So we used to go and buy people's entire rummage sales she'd offer them one price for everything they had and then she would either take that and go to the flea market on the weekends and during the week she had her own secondhand store so um but I, I i started playing the drums when i was seven okay i switched to guitar at 14 of course they gave me piano lessons when i was six which i hated because the teacher would hit your knuckles with a ruler if you made a mistake that wasn't for me and different once, time once I found the drums, because I, you know, I was five years old, uh, sitting in front of the television when I saw Ringo and the Beatles, and I remember turning around to my mom saying, "Mom, I don't want to be a fireman anymore. I want to be Ringo." 
So that's what I aspired to be my entire life from that point. I really, I focused on it and I wanted to be a rock star, just like the Beatles. Were you playing in, in bands back then, like getting together with your friends playing Beatles covers? Uh, well, it was more Led Zeppelin and stuff like okay. that. Okay. Yeah, it was, it was the heavier stuff that really tried. Jimmy. Yeah. Jimi Hendrix was, you know, the one that really made me want to play guitar. Um, and we started playing for school functions when I was about 13 or 14, stuff like that. And then um, I got my first real gig when I was 16. I wasn't old enough to be in the Moose Lodge in my hometown. And my parents being really religious, I had to slip out my window after they'd went to bed to go play the gig, which they never knew about. Um, and I had to sit behind the drums on break in case the alcohol, the ABC, Alcohol Bureau Commission, or whatever they call it, in the case the alcohol bureau came in to the club and noticed Started that I was, people. I was not 18 years old. You yeah. had to be 18 back then in Kansas to get into clubs. Who were you playing with? Friends from my hometown. Were they all over the age of 18? Um, yes. Yes. At the time, and then the... the um, I started seeing a band called... I, that, that band, the first band was that I really started making a name for myself in after I turned 18 was called the Cosmic Cowboys. That's a great name. And we played country and and rock and southern rock and all that kind of stuff. And our main com competition there was a band called Bandit. And they were playing same place as we were and everything. And the, the bass player in that band was the guy I was telling you about had the 62 Precision yeah. that had been in the Army band, Terry Warner. And uh, they started noticing me and noticing that sometimes we'd play in the same city and there'd be nobody at their gig and we'd have be packed. We'd be sold out. Mm -hmm. So they asked me to come join their band. And their band had the uh, guitar player named Chuck Mayhood that was kind of like my idol. I used to go watch him play as a kid and he had, a, he had an old 100-watt plexi head, slant cabinet, a Les Paul and a Marshall, and a... Um, it wasn't a chorus, it was a oh, flanger. Oh, okay. He had a flanger. Yeah. And uh, But he'd go in to his gig and he'd dime that plexi. He'd turn every knob up. And then he would use his little finger on the volume knob. When he'd be down around one or two with either the Strat or the Les Paul, it'd be clean and just so beautiful. And then when he'd crank it up, it'd take your fucking head off. So I grew up watching him and learning that little finger thing. And then they asked me to come play with them. Well, I was I was over the hill ecstatic because they were all much better players than the guys that were I was playing with. And sorry, fellas. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. And um, the drummer from that band, all the guys from my hometown um, that played in that band, uh, we were influenced pretty heavily by the guys that were in Roy Clark's band on Hee Haw because they were all from my hometown too, Rodney Lay and, and all that, that bunch. And um, So uh, we, we got to playing and then one day we were going to a gig and we played Friday night. We're supposed to play Friday and Saturday night at this place, a VFW or something in Parsons, Kansas. We played Friday night and it was great. Play the joint was packed. Well, Saturday night we get there and the other guitar player, my idol at the time that I was playing with, he didn't show up. And it turned out they had a warrant for him and he found out early. Uh, and they did so we played the first gig and I didn't have him to lean on. I had to do the whole thing myself. Yeah. And after we were on the first break, and here come like six cops and highway patrol, sheriffs. Rock and roll. Looking for him. And he's already in Texas. Right? Um they said and it's funny that the news had been out the night before videotaping us and so it was nine o'clock when we started well at 10 we took our break they let the news was on the tv and they led with us on the tv so there we were watching ourselves on the tv when the cops come in and they said where's chuck mayhood there he was on tv my buddy terry goes he's right up there <laughs> that was the hilarious thing i'd ever seen in my life they said he's right up there and he was on the tv and and they couldn't do a thing about it. They had to leave, and we finished the show. But I, I was the only guitar player in that band for a while. And then um, 
we we changed the name of the band and got another bass player, Leotis and the Unknowns was the name of the band. And that was the keyboard player's grandfather's God-given first name, Leotis. So he had already passed. We were Leotis and the Unknowns, and that band was very successful. We played all over the Midwest, and um, we'd been playing in Topeka for a while. I got a chance to go um, at a place called TNT, and I got a call from the owner. We used to play their Christmas party every year, which was a private function and very exclusive. It was a cool deal. Terry Honeyman called me, the, one of the owners, and he said, um, a friend of mine is starting a new band, and if you want the job, you've got to fly to Atlanta and audition at his house. I said, well, who is it? He said, Steve Walsh from Kansas. Oh, shit. Months earlier, we had been in Tulsa rehearsing in a club in the daytime, as we often did when I was in Leotis, and we heard over the radio, we were trying to find songs to, to cover, that Kansas had broken up. And we all said, oh, wouldn't it be weird if Steve Walsh needed a backup band? <laughs> we could go be Kansas's band. And uh, sure enough, I flew to Atlanta and did three songs with him at his studio in his house, which was kind of, because he was my idol, you know what I mean? Yeah. He, I saw the last show they ever did together at, in Lawrence at the football stadium at KU outdoors the last show they ever played together before they broke up so he was like he was like big time shit to me and uh did three songs with his house but i didn't get the job six months later i went to see streets which was the band he was putting together and i realized why i didn't get the job i saw the guy he hired from england who was a way better guitar player and sang as good as he did so mm -hmm. and uh from that point that's when i started putting together my own bands Donnie and the Rock was the first one that I was in until I got signed to Sony, and that band was together for probably 12 years, and we, we toured all over the United States. I crisscrossed the country eight times, and got to open for a lot of people, even Wolfman Jack. I opened for Wolfman Jack. Wolfman Jack, he was the uh, the radio DJ, right? Yep. For what uh, what station? I can't remember the station, but... It was like a syndicated show, right? We were in Hot Springs, Arkansas... And we got there and we set up and the club owner says, oh, by the way, Wolfman Jack's coming in Saturday night and you guys are going to be his backup band and he's going to, he's going to, um, you're going to do, open the show and then he's going to get up. He's going to do a Sounds Alike Wolfman contest and a Looks Alike Wolfman contest. He's going to sing a couple songs and that's it. He did 45 minutes, Wolfman Jack did. And he had six other gigs in Hot Springs that night at Places. Six other gigs, so and he was getting twenty five hundred dollars for each one of them. He was a hustler. Yeah, which kind of made me mad because we weren't getting twenty five hundred bucks for the whole week we were at this club. Oh yeah, you know I think it was fifteen hundred at the time or something. Mm -hmm. so. But it was it was pretty cool getting open for the Wolfman. Yeah. So as time has gone on, what are some things that you are most proud of in your career? Well, I would say uh, never giving up when it was really difficult when faced with those kind of things. But the Kinks tour was, that was a major one. That was 23, um, 23 shows in two and a half months in every major city in the country opening for like 30,000 people, all the big outdoor summer venues. Um, that, was, that was a great experience. Uh, even though I didn't get signed and, um, you know, getting signed at the time after I'd, my manager, when I was with Chris Fritz, he had, they, we'd done mailings to all the major labels three times. I'd been turned down three times by everybody. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I finally got the call, that, that was, um, that was something I was very proud of because, it, you know, all the naysayers from around the Kansas City area where I lived, you know, I, I was kind of like the guy that nobody liked. You know, everybody was jealous of and everybody, nobody really liked me. And they, they, I, I really, a lot of people had way more talent than I did, but they didn't have the drive or the enthusiasm. You're a hustler. I'm a hustler and, and, uh, and I'm, I'm an okay singer. Yeah. I guess I've been told. So, uh, you know, I had the voice and, and I always had a, always had a guitar player that was way better than me, that smoked me. So that if if it wasn't something that I could do on guitar, I had it covered. I always had great bands, very talented people, you know, and and uh, 
to this day, I mean, meeting Patio the first night I came to town meant that I, I fell into um, some of the best musicians that Nashville has to offer, and those are the guys that I get to play with, people like Big Mike Griffin, Jamie Potterbaum, um, Joe Bass from Detroit, um, Jer Hoffman, bass player for Joe Diffie right now, Michael Grando, Kyle Law, um, all these guys that I get to play with are just, every day I wake up and get, and get to head to a show, I pinch myself, I'm lucky. We're living a life here in Nashville that, that most people are dreaming about living. And it's uh, easy to get into the echo chamber and to just be like, music business, I got to do this, I got to do that. Da, da, da. But that's all really the bullshit side of it. Right. Because when, when you follow the purity, and for, like for me, for instance, so anytime that I've been like jamming in a basement with friends or out at a jam or some shit like that, way more has happened than if I've tried to email someone or make a great career move or something like that, which is a part of the game. You have, you have to do some of that shit, but really that's like 10% of it. This is the blessing of the jam from the first night I got to town in Nashville, Tennessee, where it's so, where it's such a struggle and so much competition. And I walked into a place the first night I was there, patio was teaching CJ Vaughn, how to play bass wow. on the front of the stage an hour before the show. And I saw that and I thought, wow, that's the spirit that I want to be involved with. You know, and, and so at first, when Patio had other gigs and he couldn't host the jam, he started having me host. I did it for two years for free. Yeah. I didn't care. Yeah. You were you getting to play. But when I would when he'd have me host, I'd make fifty bucks. And I, I, I started noticing that I was getting work from this jam. People would come in, they would see me play, they'd go, God, you're great, you want to do this date or this date or this date? So I was getting work. And I started making that beat. When, when we moved to we moved to another joint after we left Lady Godiva's, which was a, get this, motorcycle parts place in Lebanon, and they sold sushi in the daytime. And then at night, they, we would have live music. The jam would be at this place. Patio eventually opened a Cajun restaurant in that place called Crooners and uh, just gave the jam to me to run. Well, then when Crooners started to close, we moved to a place called Jimmy's out in Lebanon. And we were there eight years. We were the house band there for eight years. The first two years we were there, we did three nights a week, every Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And um, that was around 2008 when the economy crashed, so it was a blessing. Yeah, it kept the roof over my head, and and um, you know a lot of people don't understand really how hard it is here in Nashville. The first couple of years I was here, I played Broadway. I played down on Broadway. I would go down there. I would pay to park. Yep. And if you couldn't find a space, you pay to park. You get at the time it was forty a man. Is what the shifts were paying. Forty a man. Plus tips. Plus tips. Forty a man plus tips. Sure. Some nights were better than others, but if you're doing Monday or Tuesday and you have a drink or two, you get home with $10. Yeah. And plus, the shit that I was having to, to play left me soulless. You know, and I, I did it because I needed the money, but then when I figured out that there was... You know, I hear it's changed, and that's great. And I honestly, I tried to learn the... Have you, you seen the Broadway list? Yeah. You know, the Broadway list that you're expected to learn if you want to be able to play there? I got about a third of the way through it, and I just, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I'm a, I'm a recording artist that plays the blues. Yeah. Blue, I, I come from a blues rock background. That's all I'll ever be. Yeah. You know what I mean? I write my own music. I play my own music, uh, you know, when I can. But I still, I still get great joy from playing a cover. For sure. Yeah. And, and. The jam, you know, I told you it's been the biggest blessing in my life, not just because I've gotten work from it, but because of the people that I've met. We've had players from 17 different countries in every state of the union come to our jam. Yeah. People like Scott Hole, 8-Ball Aiken from Australia. I mean, I would have never known these people had it not been for the jam that I run every Thursday. And it's still every Thursday. We're at Handlebars in Murfreesboro right now. You know, 
about every two months we'll have a, a clinker. There'll be a jam when there's nobody there, but it doesn't matter. You know? There's if you people, build it, they will come. The people, that we, we know they're going to be there eventually. Yeah. It's usually packed and jumping every Thursday. And and there's always new faces. And I'm all, I, have, I have the ability at that jam to give a lot of people the opportunity to get up and play at a lot of places that wouldn't let these people get up and play. Because sure. our motto is, and it always has been, and Patio taught me this, all are welcome from beginner to pro. If you've got the balls to get up on that stage, we're going to let you get up. Yeah. Now, if you suck, you get one. If you're really good, I'll make you play all night because every song you play is one I ain't got to. Yeah. And I'm getting paid, you ain't. Totally. Yeah. So, you know, but, but getting to see a lot of these people blossom over the years, one of my good friends, uh, Delta Don Moser, he got up the first time and he started late in life playing harmonica. He played, he practiced for like a year before he finally got up on stage with me out at Jimmy's and, and the band. Nervous as hell. And he wasn't, wasn't that good. Didn't know anything about when to play, when not to play. Well, he's blossomed. He's, now he's, he's completely comfortable. He can hang. He can hang. He's completely comfortable in that environment. He'll step right up and he'll fucking, he don't take no shit off no one. Yeah. He's ready to do his thing. And that's a, that's a blessing to know that you had a part in helping someone be able to do that, you know? Well, musicians, I think, are largely, we're traditionalists in a lot of ways. And the way that you learn how to play music is from listening to other people play. Yeah. It's a human thing. And one of the things I think the, the music business is really struggling with right now, why they're grasping at a bunch of straws that just aren't working, nothing sticking, is because of that. They've, they've forgotten the fact that all music is folk music, if you really think about it. Yeah. And someone came along at one point in history and said, we need to copyright this so you can make money. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. Who I'm knows? not sure. Who knows? Yeah, who yeah. really knows? But we're in this very exciting time with the internet. I think oh, the, yeah. The internet is incredible. It's super important for music and musicianship. It's like, if you want to learn how to play a sax solo like John Coltrane, there's some person on YouTube right now. Yep, they'll show you. That they will show you exactly how to do it and what to practice. Yeah. The game completely changed once the internet Internet it did. It, it, you know, and, and for me, when I first got to Nashville, I had to do other jobs, of course, as a lot of people do. Oh, yeah? The first six years I landscaped, which was how I hurt my back trying to catch a railroad tie coming off the truck accidentally. And uh, the second six years, that 12-year frame there, second six years I installed doors for Home Depot, which didn't help much at all either. But the last six years I've done nothing but play music. But, you know... I decided at the end of that second year, you know, when I was working for Home Depot, when I first started working for them, they would pay me 75 bucks for every patio door that I put in. I was working three to five days a week. Sometimes we'd do two doors a day. It was good money. Well, in 2008, when the economy crashed, all that changed because the installers at Home Depot, that they came down on them. So they had to come down on me. Well, then it became $75 a day, no matter how many doors I was putting in. And the guy that I was working for, because I was just a, a helper, installer's helper. Yeah. Uh, he was making sure to line up all his shit in two days. So I was making like $150 for the week. Yeah. And I thought to myself, this is bullshit. If I'm going to be only making $150 a week and I got all this free time on my hand five days a week, I'm going to sit in front of this computer 12 hours a fucking day. I'm going to make a name for myself. I'm going to get Pro Tools so I can have my own studio. I, I, uh, I did my fourth and fifth album in my second bedroom. Yeah. You know, and and the fourth one is all original music of my own that I wrote mostly right there in my second bedroom. Mm -hmm. I'm really proud of that record. You know what I mean? It may not be the best one or mastered correctly or whatever, but you know, a guy paid me twenty bucks for it the other day. He got he didn't have to. It was name your price, which includes zero point zero zero. Yeah. If you if you don't got no money, I still want you to have my music. And, and he, that's smart. And he sent me $20, you know. And this is a guy that's... Uh, next time you look up Grayfield Guitars, this guy builds guitars like I do. And and, and he thought enough of, of me to spend money on my music. Yeah. So the internet is a wonderful thing. It, it changed my life. Mm -hmm. I knew... I said that if I'm not going to be 
working to do this, I'm going to make my, myself somebody again because at one time I was somebody, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I lived a rock star life for a long time. I can't say that it's the best thing for anyone. <laughs> yeah. But I managed to survive it, you know. I, I, I guess being a Leo, I, I have a nine lives. I've probably uh, only got two left. And a, and a couple of those near misses were self-inflicted for me. Oh, yeah. I had a lot of bad habits. But, you know, I've been clean 18 years now. Congratulations. I, uh, I still smoke a lot of weed. Hey, we all got advice. It should be legal everywhere. For sure. It's wrong and it's not. It's, yeah. it's, it's uh, a way less harmful drug to society, I think, than alcohol. Absolutely. And you never heard of anybody... Smoking a joint and killing their wife and kids, no. or crashing into a school bus of children with alcohol—that happens all the time. Yeah, you know, alcohol is listed as a depressant by the FDA, and marijuana is a euphoric. Yes. So, but uh, that's—I'll get off my <laughs> my high horse now. So going back for a second, um, you really seem to have a, a hustler's mindset. Where did you get that from? Was that something your parents instilled in you? Was that something you just naturally had in you? All right, well, you, we'll go back to that side of the story again about being adopted. I didn't know where I came from. I didn't know whether or not growing up, whether or not I looked like anybody else on planet Earth or I was related to anybody on planet Earth. And being a Leo, curiosity killed the cat, I was curious about that. My brother didn't seem to care um, where he came from. I did. Yeah. Um, And fortunately, Kansas was one of four states, only one of four states, that allowed viewing of the adoption records by the adoptee. The parent could not find the child, but if the child wanted to, they could subpoena their records from DHS, Department of Human Services of Kansas, and I did. I had a friend that worked at DHS. Well, two friends, and their mom worked there. And she got my records back for me. So I looked it up. There was all the information about my mother. She went to high school and college in my hometown, Coffeyville. And in the father column on the next page, it says, unknown. But then on the next page after that, it says, Mother says she knows who the father is. And while he is highly intelligent, he is of low moral character. That's all I said about my dad. Growing up on my birthday, it's supposed to be a happy event. But on my birthday, I was always sad. Well, when I was 36, I got all that paperwork back. I went from Kansas City, where I was living, back to Coffeeville. I went to the public library, because that's where they kept the yearbooks for where my mother would have graduated. I opened the yearbook. There I see her. I finally see somebody that I look like at 36 years old. And uh, I'm trying to resolve this riddle, and... I go across the street to the junior college from the library there in my hometown and to the Alumni Association and I ask them if they have any record of Beverly Marie Johnson. That was my, actually I only knew Beverly Johnson was her name. And uh, the gal said, no, we don't have any record, but did you try looking in the phone book? The first name in the Johnsons in the phone book was B.M. Johnson. So I wonder, what's her middle name? So I go back over to the library and find a yearbook with a commencement program in it. In it and on the, in the back of the commencement program right there, it said Beverly Marie Johnson. Well, the address in the phone book was three blocks up the same street the fucking library was on. So she still lived there? She was living in that fucking house. She didn't live there. <clears throat> Turns out my biological mother had left four days after I was born. She got on a plane and went to Los Angeles and met... Wally Parks and his wife, who had founded the NHRA and Hot Rod Magazine, the National Hot Rod Association, Hot Rod Magazine. Wally Parks founded all that. She'd set up timing lights on the salt flats for the first drag races. She worked at the NHRA for 22 years. She told me that my biological father was a guy named Hal Smokey Stover. Well, look him up. He played with Dizzy Gillespie. Turk Monk. A musician? He was a jazz drummer. Oh, shit. Okay. And my parents took me into a music store when I was seven, after I'd seen Ringo, and there was, here's the counter, the guy standing behind the counter, and then there was a raised deal 
back behind there, and up on top of that raised deal, there was a blue sparkle Ludwig student model, scaled down mm-hmm. track kit. And it was like Valhalla. It was like, oh, for me. And they bought that for me, you know. It's genetics, man. You can only be a product of the two people who had sex to put you here. No matter how much you try and fit into that family that adopts you. And I did. I love my family. I love my adopted family um, very much. My mom and dad that raised me were the salt of the earth. Best people you could imagine. Never heard them cuss. They never smoked, drank. We had church. They raised us right. You know what I mean? Probably the only reason I'm still here is the Mm -hmm. people that raised me. But my genetics, the two people that had sex to put me here, made me who I am. You know what I mean? The wild man. That drunk, that, that, well, you know, I, the two resounding themes in my life have always been hot rods and music. Go figure. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I redid, I rebuilt a dozen old Chevrolets, drug them home from the salvage yard and rebuilt them and sold them before I did guitars like that, you know? Before I took pieces from guitars. And, and it's just... It, it was just one of the most amazing things in the world to me to find out that I was born on my mother's birthday. That's where that sadness came in every year, my birthday. It was my mom 2,000 miles away in California wishing she'd never got rid of me. Yeah. Yeah. We had a great relationship, my biological mother and I. She was a hell of a broad. She'd never remarried. Um, very outspoken. She uh, she spoke her mind. I think that's gotten me a lot in trouble a lot here in Nashville, uh, blacklisted, so to say. I was good. Host- I don't think the black blacklist is a bad place to be. Well, maybe not. Maybe you're right. But I I was hosting the the jam at Bourbon Street for the the Nashville Blues Society for a while when Andy Talamentes and yeah yeah his band were out of town on the road touring. They would have me come in and host. Well, um. One night after I'd been doing this for like six or seven times, I got Kathy, his wife, sent me a message and said, you can't host the jam anymore. And I said, why? And she said that they said at Bourbon Street that you're too loud and too crass. And you know what? I'll wear that fucking T-shirt. Yeah. Because I am exactly that. I'm too loud. (laughs) I'm too crass. The The guy that was the sound man for the Kinks when we were on tour with them was also the sound man for the Who. And he came up to me the third day we were on tour and he said, you know, your amps are louder than anybody's I've ever fucking... Louder than the fucking who? Louder than Pete Townsend, dude. Yeah. I'll wear that t-shirt too. Yeah. I, I, You know, there's a reason rock and roll is loud. Yeah. And it ain't for you. It's for me. I don't play music for people in the audience. I don't. I play music for myself because it's, in my opinion, if you've got a great band and everything's clicking, fuck the audience. Time stands still in that moment. It's the fountain of youth, man. You're it right. really is. It's the fountain of youth. You 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 don't age when that's going on. To me, as far as I know, I mean, it's the best thing in the world. It's better than sex or any drug I've ever done. Yeah, absolutely. It really is. You get into that flow state. You can't tell people about it. It's a it's an altered um, it's an altered state. Yeah, it really is. You know. It, 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 anybody that doesn't believe me, do you know who Chris Duarte is? Yeah, he's like a Texas blues guitarist. Yeah. Yeah. And I used to watch him when I was a kid. I'd go to the Kane's Ballroom and we'd go see him for three bucks because he was the guy to go see. Yeah. And when you just go look at any YouTube video of Chris Duarte playing and you'll see that he's this high off the earth when he's playing. He's not here. Yeah. He is in no relative state where you're at. He's on another plane when he's doing that. That's what I aspire to be. I want to be in that place. You know, and, and I've, I've, I've worked hard to do that for 45 years, so maybe something good will finally come from that. <laughs> I need a booking agent. Yes. So I if, need a booking agent. If uh, if you're trying to get an a artist to play, then Donnie Miller is the guy to talk to. I need a booking agent that's hooked up on the, hooked up on the Blues Festival market because... I can walk in and I will make you money. I will make you money hand over fist and I'm not afraid to stay out on the road day after day. I'll probably die on a stage somewhere and that's where I like the colonel. Yeah. I'll probably die on a stage somewhere and that's fine with me. So final thoughts. Where can people find all your stuff at? 
um, like websites, Instagrams. What's all your handles? How can people find you? Well, on Instagram, it's Mr. Donnie Miller. You can find me there on Instagram. Uh, my website is DonnieMillerMusic.com. I'm on Reverb Nation. I'm on Twitter. Um, that's Donnie Miller. Um, and you can download my music for free on Bandcamp. Uh, DonnieMiller.com. Yeah, you can go get all three albums that are up and available for Name Your Price, which is 0. 0.00. And Cheapo Casters. Don't forget Cheapo Casters. Yeah, I take, I take old Squire Fender parts or anything I can, really anything I can get. I, I do Tellys and Stratocasters, and uh, I, I take them, the ones that people are taking apart and are selling, and, and I, I rebuild them and, and sell them for anywhere from three to 500 bucks. But set up from buy a pro to play like pro guitars. Somebody who knows how to play. Hey man, it's a piece of wood and some electronics. There's no mystery to it. Yeah. You know, Leo Fender. Leo Fender did an amazing thing when he built those particular guitars back in the '50s because the design is timeless and simplistic, but still yet so elegant. Yeah. You know, it's you, the working you, man's instrument. It is. It really is. You know, the Tele is more so, I think, than the Strat. Because the telly is just a platform that was made for modding. Yeah. You know, and, and it's so simplistic. It's a volume of tone, two pickups. Hell yeah. And a switch. Yeah. And the Strat is a little more complicated and elegant, but, and I'm a Strat guy, I've always been a Strat guy. But, you know, for, for me, it's, it's, it's easy now, too. I, did, I didn't, never thought I would ever know how to wire a pit guard, but it's become second nature to me, and, and I've done some really unique stuff that I hand painted fretboards. Everything I tried to, I I've tried to copy a lot of what Fender Custom Shop does, not as a slap in their face or to try and be mean. They're it's, doing it right. They're doing it right, and I can't afford that. Yeah. Uh, one of the, the, the one of the strats that I did that I hand painted every square inch of it. Uh, Fender did Telecasters that were um, called Thunderbird Tellies, that were really unique instruments. They were all hand painted everywhere mm -hmm. at the Custom Shop, and they were asking fourteen grand a piece for these Telecasters. 14 grand a piece. So I said to myself, I want to see if, how cheap I can actually do one that kind of looks like that. So I copied the back of one. I mean perfectly. There's a picture on my Cheapacasters page of that telly and the Strat, the back of them both. You can't tell the difference. And I, I made mine for around $300. And uh, ended up selling it for a lot more because some guy saw it and had to have it. Yeah. So That's how it goes. One more question for you. What advice would you give someone who wants to follow in your footsteps or they want to have a music career? What would you tell them to do? Go to college and don't. If you, if, unless it's something that you, because unless it's something that you really believe uh, you were called to do, you can't pick music. Music has to pick you. Um, don't do it. Because it, it will, it will be a source of uh, suffering, like you've never known, ever before, uh, to try and get somewhere. You know, and, and that's not true for everybody. Some people come to this town and just immediately, they make it. They pop off, yeah. Um, but that's the uh, that's the exception rather than the rule. Yeah. Uh, the rule is for every one guy out there that that happens to or gal there's 10,000 more that it doesn't do yeah. for and that have to suffer for their cause and and the suffering you know is going not going to be worth it unless music picked you if music picked you then you have no other choice than to do that i think you could also the way i think of it is we all have to suffer in some way cuz in a lot of ways is like the buddhist mentality of life is suffering so you have to pick what you want to suffer for yeah yeah do you want to suffer Going and doing a job you hate, fuck that. Or do you want to suffer uh, doing something that you love and and pays back rewards and dividends that are immeasurable? Spiritual, spiritual and Im immeasurable. You can't, you can't, you can't buy the kind of stuff that I've experienced in my life. Yeah, it, it's it's, and I, I look back on it all and and I, I the only conclusion I can come to is I'm just so blessed every day. Every day is a bonus day that I wake up. So, Donnie, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you, Taylor.